If you would, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 35 through 43. We are jumping into the middle of a chapter, and I know you probably don't even know the context of what's going on, but I will show you what's going on. But let's read verses 35 through 43, John chapter 12. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Well, church, you know real well that we are living in an evil world. Just witnessing some of the events in this past week of what's been going on, in Afghanistan is, of course, horrific to watch and to hear of. The type of evil that people are still capable of is sometimes surprising to us. There's public executions. Christians are being persecuted for their faith. Some have said that some are already being shot and even killed for that very faith in Christ. How do we as a church respond to such things? That same kind of evil and hate and murder and hostility is actually happening right in our own borders as well. Just unable to carry it out as much as those in other countries. What should we be thinking about? How should we respond in our hearts and in our minds? I think it's this. I think there's one way to respond to it. We can say that there's really just no fear of God before their eyes. There's really no acknowledgement of a creator. There's a love for sin. And our Lord's law is being transgressed all day long. For us as believers, as we watch these newsreels, we read these articles, we watch these interviews, we see corruption hear of gruesome stories, our question should be really to our Lord in prayer, how, Lord, how can you be so patient? I'm not personally offended by all that's going on. I don't have someone there that's being persecuted that I know and love and is dear to me. Maybe some of you do have. Maybe you are personally offended by it, and I would agree, and I understand that fully. 
But the one who is most offended by all that we see is the one true and only God. God is the one who is offended by every single sin. He is offended by every sinner all of the time. He is offended in an incalculable way and really an inconceivable way. God, who is absolutely holy in all that he is, is offended by every violation of his word, law, nature, and name. That's really what makes his patience so amazing because of who he is. A.W. Pink, in his famous book on the attributes of God, writes this. He says, how wondrous is God's patience with the world today. On every side, people are sinning with a high hand. The divine law is trampled underfoot and God himself openly despised. It is truly amazing that he does not instantly strike dead those who so brazenly defy him. Why does he not suddenly cut off the haughty infidel and blatant blasphemer as he did Ananias and Sapphira? Why does he not cause the earth to open its mouth and devour the persecutor of his own people? And what of apostate Christendom, where every possible form of sin is now tolerated and practiced under cover of the holy name of Christ? Why does not the righteous wrath of heaven make an end of such abominations? Only answer possible. It is because God bears much with long suffering and patience. God has been in human history astonishingly patient with sinners. In the garden, God told Adam that if you eat of the fruit and of the tree, you shall surely die. Adam ate and he lived 930 years. God told Noah, I'm going to flood the earth and I'm going to destroy it. Noah preached for 120 years to the people. And Peter says in 1 Peter 3.20, describing that era as the patience of God waiting in the days of Noah. In Psalm 78, 38, which portrays how gracious God has been throughout Israel's history, says, Yet he, God, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all of his wrath. Isaiah 48, 9 describes Israel's rebellion during the Babylonian captivity. And the Lord says, for my name's sake, for not my name's sake, I defer my anger for the sake of my praise. I restrain it for you. God says, I'm putting my grace, mercy, compassion, long suffering and patience on display for you to see. But that patience doesn't last forever. In 2 Chronicles 36, again, during that Babylonian captivity, where idolatry is rampant in Israel and disobedience to God's law was reigning in Israel, we read that Israel was continually mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy, until there was no more remedy. That is what we have here 
in John chapter 12. Jesus has been abundantly patient with his people for the three years of his ministry on earth. And here he issues one more final invitation, a final call to believe on him while there is still time with his patience. In our passage, we're just going to see two very simple things. The Apostle John is going to show us, one, that final public call for Israel to believe on Christ. And two, John is going to show us why there was such catastrophic unbelief that came from the people to whom Christ ministered to. A final call, and John will show why there was such widespread unbelief from his people. Now, we're jumping right here into the middle of John chapter 12, but let me just set a little bit of context real quick, okay? We ended, if you remember, two weeks ago with the raising of Lazarus, Jesus' friend that he rose from the grave. There were many people present, and when they had witnessed that miracle, some of those that witnessed went and told the Pharisees what Jesus had done. Now look over in your Bibles at chapter 11 and verse 46. There we have, John says, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council, that's the highest court in Israel, and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Again, they're not trying to deny or dismantle the fact that Christ seriously raise Lazarus from the dead. They're just trying to strategize what they're going to do with that obvious truth. Now look there at chapter 11 and verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put Christ to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer, verse 54, walked openly among the Jews. From there on out, Jesus then leaves Bethany where he, where he uh, raised Lazarus from the dead. He leaves Bethany, which is near Jerusalem, to go even further away from Jerusalem for some time. And then he comes back to Bethany one last time and he reclines there in Matthew chapter 12 with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who is now alive. He then will enter Jerusalem on Monday on that triumphal entry where he officially presents himself as the Messiah to the nation of Israel. And he came back to Jerusalem at that perfect time to set in motion all of the events that would quickly lead to his death that was perfectly ordained by God. Thousands of people are there during the Passover week, and they are all there and hailing him as the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're saying that of Christ when he enters Jerusalem during this time. And everything that Christ had done up to this point, his miracles, his claims, the Jews are concluding this has to be him. This has to be the Messiah that we have been waiting for. And it looks that way because Jesus is there accepting their praise and acknowledgement as the King of Israel. It looked like he was accepting the role that they wanted him to take as a political leader. This has to be him. This has to be the Messiah. But they were surprised. Because the following day on Tuesday, he would go to their temple and he would attack them and their own religious system. He didn't go and attack the Romans that they were hoping for him to do. He actually goes and attacks their temple and their false religion, their false worship of Yahweh. 
Then he tells the public after that that he's going to die. If you look there at John chapter 12 and verse 32, he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. What does he mean by that? Verse 33, he said this to show the crowd to, excuse me, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What kind of death? He was going to be crucified. He was telling the crowds that he was going to be crucified. Verse 34, so the crowd answered him saying, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? A crucified Messiah? A Messiah who isn't going to overthrow Rome? This is it for them. They've had enough of this so-called Messiah, and they changed their minds from what they were just hailing as he entered into Jerusalem. But you note there in verse 34, They say, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. It is a universal understanding in the Old Testament that the Christ would remain forever. Well, why do they say that? Well, they're they're true. They're right, by the way. You have passages like Isaiah chapter 9, Ezekiel 37, Daniel chapter 7, all showing that the Son of Man would come and defeat God's enemies and establish a what? An everlasting kingdom. Psalm 110, a messianic psalm that explains that the Messiah will come and be a priest forever. He would come from the line of David, and that line will continue forever with an everlasting kingdom. However, they overlooked the fact that the Messiah's first coming, his first advent, he would come as a sacrifice for sins. Isaiah 53, verse 5, explaining the suffering servant, he would be crushed for our iniquities. By his stripes, we are healed. He would be like a lamb led to the slaughter. He would be crucified. He came in his first coming to die. But the minds of the Jews right now are not on their sin that needed to be atoned for once and for all. They want to get out of slavery. They want a political leader to overthrow Rome. So then the Jews go from hailing him as the Messiah Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And once this son of man doesn't fit their idea of a Messiah, they want nothing to do with him. And in just a few days, their hailing goes from blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to crucify him, crucify him. And Christ knows all of this is coming. He knows what's going on in their hearts. But despite the Jews' rejection of him, in Christ's persistent love, compassion, and patience for them, he offers them one final invitation to acknowledge him as the Messiah. Look there at chapter 12 and verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. It's interesting to note that he doesn't answer their question. That's not even an issue for him right now. Though he could have, he could have opened up the scriptures and he could have shown where their misunderstandings were at, but he doesn't. Why? This is the end of his three-year earthly ministry. Three years of miracles, three years of truths, three years of his claims to be the Son of God, proof after proof after proof to his person, 
to prove that he was the Messiah. He created wine out of nothing, bread out of nothing, the blind see, the lame walk, the dead rise, his wisdom, his omniscience, his power, his love, his authority, his righteousness, all pointing again and again to the authenticity to him as God in the flesh. For Christ, there is nothing left to be said at this point. Really, the only other public sign that will be done from this time may be the sign of the prophet Jonah, where Christ says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If you notice there in verse 35, three times, And verse 36, three times Christ says, while. The light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light. Verse 36, while you have the light. It's a time indicator. Jesus is speaking of his soon-to-be departure. Christ is referring to himself again as that very light, as the light of the world. The Messiah in the Old Testament was repeatedly referred to as a light to the nations. Paul described Christ in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, as the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Christ is saying that that light is among you right now because I am among you, but not forever. Christ has already been warning them over and over again. He said back to the unbelieving Jews in John chapter 7 and verse 33, he says, I will be with you a little while longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me because where I am, you cannot come. There's a warning with time still left. And if not taken, with that time, there will then only be a judgment. And Jesus says, that we are now at the end of that time that I have been lovingly, compassionately been warning you about. So while you have that light, walk while you have this light among you. I've been in many situations in my occupation where I've been in very dark and tight spaces. And what's required of me is I need a light. There's nobody around, I'm by myself, and I'm relying on this one light that gets me through the darkness. And I'm relying on one very simple modern technology. It's called a battery. But batteries don't last forever. And to my dismay, I have had some of those batteries go out on me. And I am in pitch black darkness in very, very tight spaces. Some of you are shaking your head like, I don't even want to know what your occupation is. (laughs) No help. I can't scream for help. I'm totally by myself. And this was before I had an iPhone where I can just flip it up and turn on the little flashlight that I now have by myself, only to be left to be groping in the dark with hope to find the light. That's the picture that Christ is giving to Israel right now, his hearers. Walk while you have this light. The Lord is warning those around him who have rejected him over and over and over again, that if they do not appropriate him, take him in as the light, 
darkness will soon overtake you. He is saying that their day of grace will come to an end for them. There is an end to God's patience to those who continually reject him. He will not do this forever for every single individual soul who rejects him. In verse 36, he says, while you have the light, believe in the light. The obvious implication is when the light is gone, there will be no more opportunity to believe in that light. And you ask, well, what exactly is this metaphor of darkness? What does that actually mean for those that will be overtaken by that darkness once the light goes out? Now, in this day, the light was Christ before them. For our day, as soon as people are alive and they're seeing the light of the glory of Christ seen in the gospel, there's a time frame given to them as soon as they start to understand the gospel. I don't know when that time comes for every single person, but there is a time indicator for every person that begins to see the light of Jesus Christ. It will not go on forever. And the sobering truth, church, and we know it well from Scripture, is that when sinners persistently reject him or are continually indifferent to him, God may ultimately remove his offer of grace and judge them. Psalm chapter 81 and verse 11. Listen to these words carefully. God speaking of Israel's rebellion in its history he says, my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. That's darkness. Hosea chapter 4 and verse 17, the Lord says of Ephraim, a name for northern Israel, Ephraim is joined themselves to idols. Leave them alone. That's darkness. Romans chapter 1, three times, Paul spoke of God's judgment in abandoning sinners and giving them over to the consequences of their sins with no more remedy. That's darkness. Hebrews chapter 10 warns those who go on sinning willfully, those who do not repent, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, then there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Listen, church, you know it well. God is long-suffering and patient. He is loving, infinitely gracious, and not willing that any should perish. But the individual, but the sinner who has considered, seen, understood, known, and offer, been offered the saving work of Jesus Christ on their behalf in the gospel message, and that individual continually meets with scorn that truth or counts it worthless or is just plain old, old indifference to the message of Christ, the writer of Hebrews is saying there is nothing left for that individual except a judgment from the one true and living God. That's darkness. If you do not appropriate the light that is given to you by his grace, God may ultimately hand that individual over to darkness with no more remedy. Two quick applications. Does this describe any of you? Are you riding the fence at all with the Christian faith? Are you holding Christ with a loose hand? 
I think it's pretty clear so far what's been said if you are faltering in any way. The only thing that I can say is seek the Lord while he may be found because there will come a day where you will seek a remedy, but he will not be found. You will not be able to find him. He will be gone and darkness will overtake you. Church, those of you who have been saved by Christ, faith in Christ, and are eternally secure, I bet you are thinking just like me. You're probably thinking of some individuals who this explains. You're thinking of individuals who have maybe been in and around the church. They know the gospel. They know the truth about Jesus Christ, but they meet that truth with indifference. The most loving thing to do, church, is for them to be warned that they have that light among them only for a little while. Jesus said that we are the lights of the world. We are to warn sinners in love that if they do not appropriate the true light of the world, Jesus Christ, there will soon come a day when all opportunities will cease. There is an urgency in our evangelism church, an urgency for their own sake. If you're there in John chapter 12, look at verse 36b. You probably have that subtitle, The Unbelief of the People. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. That's the end. That was the end of Christ's public ministry to Israel. He hid himself from them, no longer to be seen by them in public to where he can offer them the gospel of grace. That's a judgment. The light of the world, the only light that Israel had, the light of the nations, had just left. Israel's intended destiny was to believe in, believe on the light of the world. They were to be enlightened by the true light so that they could then turn and enlighten others and they themselves would be a light to other nations who were without the saving truth of the Messiah. They were to be that missionary nation. And for us in the church, because we have been chosen by God, we now have that amazing privilege. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 and 10. Peter says to those in the church, those who have been called by his grace, you are a chosen race. You know this verse well. A royal priesthood. You are now a holy nation, a people for his own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, beginning in verse 37, John the Apostle is going to show why there was such widespread unbelief from the nation of Israel at this time. In verse 37, it says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. The miracles of Jesus were that important. They were unmistakable in their authenticity, and they were to lead anybody seeing that and conclude that Jesus has to be God. 
But the miracles of Jesus, listen, had their limits in that they were never meant to reverse unbelief. Evidences, apologetics, arguments, defending the faith over and over again isn't what causes the people to believe. They alone have their limits. What causes belief, church, is a regenerated heart, a monergistic work, a work by the Spirit of God himself that has nothing to do with you, which causes faith in the Son of God. God may use miracles, which he has, or evidences, or apologetics, or arguments, or defending the faith, use that as an instrument or vehicle to regenerate someone who is dead in their sins. But the miracles do not reverse unbelief. You remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16? You don't have to turn there, I'll abbreviate it for you. Lazarus, not Lazarus of John chapter 11, not Jesus' friend that he raises from the dead, Lazarus the poor man who died and was at Abraham's side. Lazarus died and he was there in heaven alongside Father Abraham. The rich man dies and is in Hades being in torment. And the rich man cries out to Abraham saying, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And the rich man says, Father Abraham, I beg you to send Lazarus, who is with you, down to the world to my five brothers to warn them that lest they too come to this place of torment that I am currently at. But Abraham said to the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets. What does that mean? They have the scriptures. They have the scriptures. They have Moses and the prophets. Let your brothers hear them. But the rich man says, No, Father Abraham, if someone is to go to them from the dead, they will repent. If you send Lazarus back down and raise him from the dead and show him alive again to my five brothers, they will repent. Abraham said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Did you get that connection? Jesus is proving that his miracles would never actually truly reverse unbelief. They were an instrument. That's why we refer to them as signs and wonders. They were a sign that pointed to a truth. You see a stop sign, it tells you a truth. They were never intended to bring saving faith. It is the scriptures that reveal the good news of the gospel. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, it's the gospel that is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. It takes the choice and power of God alone to overcome man's sinful nature and willful unbelief and to give that sinner new life in Christ. Beginning in verse 38 there in John chapter 12, the Apostle John will explain to us from Scripture why there was such widespread unbelief from the Jews. And he shows it from two passages in the book of Isaiah. You see there in verse 38, it says that many did not believe in him after his miracles, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And beginning there in verse 38, he quotes Isaiah 53, 1. And then he'll quote in verse 40, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 10. I just want to take those verses just one at a time. 
Isaiah 53. Why does he choose Isaiah 53 to explain such unbelief from the Jews? Well, you know Isaiah 53. It's the suffering servant. It's probably our favorite passage in all of Isaiah. Now, in Isaiah, going before verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 3, Isaiah has already been presenting um, the servant, the Messiah when he comes, what he will do, what he will say, chapter 42, chapter 49, what he will accomplish when he comes, and in verse and chapter 53, how that Messiah, when he comes, how he will as well suffer. And in chapter 53 and verse 1, the obvious question that Isaiah poses there, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? The question is, who's going to believe this Messiah? This isn't going to be met with unbelief, this Messiah that's, this Messiah that's being presented to us. What's not going to be met with unbelief? Isaiah 53 and verse 3, he had no form or majesty. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He would be acquainted with grief. He was continually going to be despised by the people. No one's going to believe this kind of Messiah. And you say, what's the point? Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Christ would step foot on earth and said that that Messiah would be rejected. God himself knew that that Messiah would be rejected. It's right there. And that's who he sent. And John is saying with those words by Isaiah, they're actually being fulfilled right now in our midst. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. Paul says, For the word of the cross, the gospel message, is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolish. It's moronic that Christ would have to save individuals. It's folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Verse 22 in 1 Corinthians, For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ, what? Crucified. Which is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Isaiah is saying, who's going to believe this? Those who are being saved by God are going to recognize that Messiah as the one and only Messiah whom the Father has sent and they will embrace him wholeheartedly and joyfully. But Israel, no. They're going to reject him. Then, secondly, in verse 40, he quotes Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 10. Why that one? We know Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is preaching about what he had just seen in a vision. Isaiah 6, 1. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting upon his throne. The train of his robe filled the temple, and the seraphim are covering their faces, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah was to go and preach to the people of this high and holy one. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Isaiah, as you go and you preach, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. 
How? Why? How, how's that going to happen? When I go and tell the people of my vision and how high and holy you are, how great and awesome you are, how will it that this message will make the heart of your people dull? Because, Isaiah, my people don't want me. My people right now, Isaiah, don't want me on my throne. They don't want to see me high and lifted up. They don't want my holiness. They don't want to be continually commanded by me. They see me as a burden. Isaiah, actually, they would rather carve for themselves idols made out of wood who have no power. They would rather have the praise and glory of man right now. So as you preach, Isaiah, they're not going to listen to you. They do not want me. And that was prophesied 700 years before the Messiah came and stepped foot on earth. Do you think that caught God by surprise? John chapter 1, we knew it well. He came to his own and his own received him not. God sent that Messiah for that result. He knew that that's what was going to happen. My people during Isaiah's time are not going to want me. And when I send the Messiah 700 years from now, they're not going to want him either. Look at chapter 12 and verse 41. We'll close there. John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who? Verse 42, nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him. Same person. Who's John talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ. John is saying that that high and holy one that Isaiah saw and spoke of, that you all know is right here before us. He is the light of the world. He is the Messiah who came as a sacrifice for sins once and for all. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It's a sad ending for sure. Let's end on a, on a better note, shall we? God's plan, listen, God's plan from before time began was to use the nation of Israel's rejection of Jesus to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He used that unbelief that he knew well about he used that unbelief of Israel as his plan A. This is not plan B. His plan A was to crucify his true and only Messiah, to ransom a people from every tribe, tongue, language, people, and nation. Romans chapter 11 and verse 11, Paul says, through Israel's trans, tra trespass, through their rejection, through their apostasy and rejection, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Church, that's you and that's me. 
salvation from the one and only Messiah has come to us from the loving, caring Father of glory. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to simply read this last passage and we'll close. Ephesians chapter 2. And verse 11, Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, speaking to Gentiles, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah, whose name is Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are our peace. You have brought us near by your blood. We are so thankful that you have called us out of that darkness. And if it wasn't for you, we would have continued in that darkness to be overtaken by it for all of eternity. In your grace, in your mercy, in your perfect plan, you decided to save sinners. For that, we are grateful. I do pray, Lord, just for the faithfulness of our own church. These are hard times now and coming upon us. And the kingdom of your beloved son needs serious, faithful Christians who are going to exhort people and show them that there is little time while they have the light of Jesus Christ before them to seek the remedy that they have among them while there is still time. We are so thankful as citizens of your kingdom that you have eternally secured us to never fear of you ever running out of patience for us. You have cast all your wrath and anger upon your son, Jesus Christ, who died in the place of sinners. I pray that the gospel message would continually impact our hearts, our minds, that you would continually transform us by your grace and that we would live faithful, Christian, obedient lives so that you may be glorified, souls may be saved, and that you alone would get glory, honor, and praise, Lord, for you are so worthy. We, Father, we thank you for this time and for the understanding of your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.